Welcome to the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Richie Brock. And on today's episode, Richie and I are going to be diving into the second part of our series on how Christianity re-enchants everything. And in particular, we're going to be looking at how Christianity re-enchants the creation. So today's episode should be fun. And also, surprise, we're going to give this whole uncut edition away for free to everyone today since we didn't do an episode last week. Yep. So so Sword and Staff Uncut uh, Special Edition right. for, for everybody, right? And so uh, make sure that you uh, head on over to our Patreon and become a patron. Uh, the uncut version today will actually release there first. We are going to give it away to everybody since we didn't have an episode last week, but it will drop there first. And after this edition, every edition drops there first, right? And our Patreon community gets the uncut editions exclusively. So head on over to our Patreon, get the Sword and Staff uncut for just $5 per month, and you can do that at www.patreon.com backslash sword and staff order. And so to get into today's topic, we're going to start talking about how Christianity re-enchants everything. And so what we want to start off by talking about is the biblical view of the world. Right. right, right. In order to get into the to the nuts and the bolts of the creation, we need to understand the creation and how God has created it. Right. And so, in the first chapter of Genesis, in Genesis chapter one, we come across what is called traditionally as the creation week. Right. So God creates the universe in six days. On the seventh day, He sabbaths or He rests. But the interesting thing is I'm doing a, a sermon series right now at New Haven Church, our church, on uh, Genesis. Yep. And so I've been in Genesis a lot. Like we're in Genesis chapter 9 now, and we've been here for like five months. Four months. It, took, yep. it took me three years to preach through through Romans, so it's wow. probably going to take me that long or more to preach through Genesis. Um, but in Genesis chapter 1 we see that the, it was called the cosmology of the world, right? When we need to understand this first before we dive into the, to the, the nuts and bolts. But we see that the way that God created in the creation week is he created the universe or the, the, the earth in particular with three realms, right? We see heavens above, earth below, waters beneath the earth, right? Heavens above, earth below, waters beneath the earth. Yep. The first three days of creation... That's what God creates. Heavens above, earth below, waters beneath the earth, right? We see that he speaks things into existence, right? Out of nothing, ex nihilo. And then he brings the dry land, right, up out of, well, he first he separates the waters, you know, he does the whole separating of the waters from the waters and, you know, all that whole thing. But, um, but you know, he talks about, you know, let there be light, right, all that whole thing. We've got the heavens and then, you know, with the earth, we've got the water, the spirit hovering over the waters. Uh, and then he separates the waters and we've got dry land coming up and, you know, this whole thing, right? But what we see there is God forms three different realms, which are heavens above, earth below, waters beneath the earth. Then on the next three days of creation, we see what's called parallelism, okay? Parallelism is this type of story device that you see a lot in Hebrew writings, okay? But on the three next three days, which parallels with the first three creation days, we see God fill the three realms that he formed, 
Okay, so he fills the heaven with what? Sun, moon, and stars, which are for signs and for seasons, the scriptures say. We also know that those are also symbolic of spiritual beings. We're going to get into that a little bit more, but like I'm not the only person who have said that. Dr. Tim Mackey from Bible Project also says that the creation of the sun, moon, and stars was also the creation of spiritual beings. So we see God form the heavens, and then he fills the heavens, right? And now we see God form the earth, and now he's going to fill the earth, and he fills it with teeming life, right? He fills it with with uh, the, the land beasts, right, the creeping things, all of that type of thing. Uh, then he fills the waters, right? And he says he fills it with swarming beasts, right? We've got fi- the fish of the sea. They're swarming and they're teeming. And then at the apex of creation, God creates man, right? right? And man is created as the king, the steward, of the creation under God, right? God is the king of kings. He installs man, Adam, to be the king who is going to expand this whole big garden, the garden that he's going to put him in. He wants him to expand it across the earth, right? He tells him to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, that whole thing, right? So that's the cosmology of the world, right? We've got heavens above, earth below, waters beneath the earth. That is, uh, that's, That's how we should think about the world. That's how the biblical writers thought about the world. Now, the interesting thing is this, right? That this cosmology um, actually becomes categories for understanding biblical symbolism and interpreting the world, okay? Now, we've talked about this some before, right? We've talked about how uh, the sun, moon, and stars are symbols for spiritual rulers. Yep. Right. Um, but we, we see that a lot in, in, in other ways, too. So, for example, sun, and moon, and stars, as we've seen, get used um, for symbols for spiritual beings. Like, we see that in Job, right? We've talked about that, where the sons of God are described as being like stars, right? And then we see other spiritual beings who fall from heaven. What are they pictured as? Stars. Yep. Falling from the heavens. Falling stars, yep. Right? We see that with Satan, right? He's a falling star out of heaven, that whole type of thing. Um, But that's not the only place that we see that type of symbolism, too. Like, we also see, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the places we see this, I think it was in Isaiah. I'd have to go back and look at the the passage. But um, we also see birds used as for spiritual or for symbolism for spiritual beings, right? Um, now you might ask the question, well, why would birds be used as symbolism, uh, for spiritual beings, right? Well, the reason why is because think about it. What do birds do? They fly in the firmament heavens, right? Right. They're present in the heavens. That's right. They're, they're in, in the heavens, you know, that whole thing. And, um, so yeah. So one of the places that we see this in particular is in Isaiah thirty four fourteen, and this is a passage that talks about a demonic being named Lilith. Right? Oh boy, <laughs> I don't plan on going too far down this rabbit hole, but but uh, I mean, we've been down this one. Before. Yeah, I think we've talked about Lilith before, but this is a this is a known you know demonic entity. maybe not on the podcast, but I don't know, I, I can't remember. Uh, we may have touched on it, but yeah. Well, anyway, Lilith Lilith is this you know uh, Babylonian. Uh, demonic spiritual being right like you can you can find more about lilith in in babylonian accounts and that entire thing um it does come over into the judeo-christian worldview and the way that the judeo-christian writers under the inspiration of the holy spirit viewed this spiritual entity was that this was a demonic spiritual being 
right? And we actually see that in particular uh, in Isaiah 34, um, uh, verses uh, Isaiah 34, 14. And in this verse here, it actually says the desert creatures will encounter the jackals and the hairy goat will call to its kind. Indeed, Lilith, the night demon, will settle there and find herself a place for rest. Um, now, other translations say this in this way. So this is how uh, the King James says it. It says, The wild beast of the desert shall also meet the wild beast of the island. The satyr, which we've talked about that before yeah. in our cryptids episode. Uh, not going to get into that one right now. If you want more on that one, go back and listen to our cryptids episode. But it says, The satyr shall cry to his fellow, The screech owl. Okay? The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Now, why is it, do you think, I'm asking you this, why do you think that the Bible would use owl, bird imagery, to describe this dark spiritual being? I mean, even in the occult, even in paganism, owls are seen as wisdom keepers of mm. secret knowledge. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So here's here's kind of my 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 take on it here's what i think um you have that aspect to it where it's this knowledge keeper type thing um i think that the reason why you so you have lilith who is obviously a, a this heavenly type of being yeah, right? we're going to just have to do an episode on lilith <laughs> right yeah I we mean, might just have to do a whole so much so here's what i think uh this is my take on it and uh so uh, if you understand biblical symbolism i don't think it's that tough to figure out why it's using the screech owl um, there's a couple of different other translations that have different types of uh, wording there. Like one uh, other translations may say the night monster, the screech owl, the night bird. Uh, but the, the, the theme here is consistent, right? We're using some sort of night bird imagery right. to describe this demonic being who in the Hebrew is called Lilith. Yeah. So why is the scriptures using this? Well, it's because you have to understand that cosmology gets used to describe biblical symbolism. They, they become the categories for understanding biblical symbolism. So star, sun, moon, and stars, right? Heavenly beings. Birds. Heavenly beings as well. Yep. Here in particular, night bird used to describe a dark spiritual being. Why? Because the owl comes out when? At night. At night, right? It's this bird that's a... If you've ever seen a, an owl, owls can be savage, yeah. <laughs> right? Yep. And they come out at night, right? They're they're predators, right? They, they take out other animals, right? They take out all kinds of things if you're not careful. Like if you've got, like, you know... If you got chickens, you know, like we've got chickens, you know, if you're not careful, like they could, you know, take, take your chickens and, you know, but anyway, um, but that's what's going on here. This is why the Bible is using this owl symbolism to talk about Lilith, right? Because it is this dark being that flies in the heavens, right? During the darkness. So that's the logic here, right? Now, um, now that's not the only category that gets used in this way. Okay. Now the second uh, realm that God created, which is the earth, right? Heavens above, we just looked at. Earth b below. It also gets used uh, for a category of symbolism as well, animal symbolism and nature symbolism. So an example of this we see in Psalm chapter uh, 1. So in Psalm 1, and this is uh, David who is writing Psalm 1, 
he says this. He talks about the, the righteous man and what the righteous man is like. So listen to what he says. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his, lie, his, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now listen to what he says here in verse 3. The man who does this, he says, who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, he says he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers so david takes this earth symbolism nature symbolism right and uses it as a category for understanding people right right like we can be like trees right we and, and you you got to think about that. What do trees do? Well, if it's a good tree, it bears what? Good fruit. fruit. Yep. Good fruit. Right. It bears good fruit. And whenever we meditate on what God says, that happens to us. We bear good fruits. The fruit of the spirit that that Paul talks about at the end of Galatians. Now. That's not the only place that talks about this. There's a lot of places that talk about this. You know, whenever Israel wants a king and they want Saul to be, you know, whenever they're looking for a king, it's right before Saul, they say that they want a tree to rule over them. Yeah. Right? Like they're they're wanting someone who is going to be, uh, they're looking for someone who's going to be this righteous tree, kind of like you see in, you know, this place who will rule over them, that kind of thing. But anyway, we know that Saul doesn't end up, he, he's not that. Yeah. <laughs> he ends up being a, a bramble bush who, you know, brings a lot of pain and, and suffering and, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. But but we see this type of language again used specifically like in John chapter 15 with Jesus. So in John 15, Jesus talks about this. He says, I am the true vine and you and, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is taking this same earth symbolism, this same nature symbolism, and he's doing the same thing that David's doing in Psalm 1, right? He's applying it to people, right? You can be a branch, right? The Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine. You are a branch that is attached. And... You are supposed to bear fruit. He says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus is doing the same thing that David's doing. He's taking this earth symbolism, and he's using it to make a point about us, that we can become like trees who bear good fruit if we abide in him, right? If we meditate on his law day and night, if we look at him, that's what happens. Now, other places that this happens as well is in the scriptures. We also learn, you know, later on in Genesis chapter 8, I think is the first mention of it. We see the first distinction between clean and unclean animals, yeah. right? You see that with uh, with uh, Noah, after the whole ark encounter, right, uh, the whole narrative there with Noah and the flood and all that, uh, Noah, the very first thing that he's going to do after he gets off the ark is he's going to build an altar, 
right? And then in chapter 8, we see that what he does is he chooses, he distinguishes, it says he takes every, he takes a, in verse 20 of chapter 8, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. So there's clean birds and there's not clean birds, right? Um, and he offered them up as burnt offerings to the Lord. And then when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, right? So basically what's going on here is later on, we're going to see this distinction uh, between clean and unclean animals applied to clean and unclean nations, right? In the same way that the tree symbolism gets applied to mankind, animal symbolism gets applied to mankind as well, right? And so the way that that happens is, uh, so Israel is going to be, this nation for the Lord, right? And what what's the other nations going to be? They're going to be unclean nations, right? Like, and the Lord is actually going to have, like, laws regarding how they're going to interact with different types of people, right? And then there's even going to have to be, like, rituals for cleansing oneself yep. and, you know, that entire thing. There's even going to be food laws where there's going to be clean and unclean animals. And if you come in contact with this type of animal, then we're going to have to do this thing, you know. And, like, you can't eat the foods of other nations because they've been sacrificed to idols. And whenever you sa- eat food that's sacrificed to idols, it makes you unclean and impure. You know, you've got that entire thing. So, this this is becoming the Bible's way. This cosmology that we started our podcast off with today, it not only is it cosmology, but it becomes the categories for interpreting symbolism, right? Now, the last category that we're going to look at here um, is the uh, the last one, okay? Right? So the last one is, what was the third realm that God creates? Right? It's the waters beneath the earth. Yep. Right? So... Water symbolism. Now, think about that, okay? We've got heavens above, we've got earth below, and then we've got something now that's beneath the earth, right? This We're talking now underworld stuff, yeah. right? We're talking underworld, we're talking below the earth, right? And that's the Bible's category for, for the underworld. Like, so for example, um, we see this specifically in places like, like Jonah, right? Jonah gets thrown into the waters, and what is it that comes up and takes him? Well, contrary to what you think, yep. the text does not say that it's a well, <laughs> right? I think that's that's going to be a shock to most well, people, to a lot of people. Well, it, the language that we see used for these types of sea creatures is like Leviathan, yeah, right? Like we we see. Uh, let, me, let me pull it up here real quick. Um, yeah, in like places like uh, Psalm seventy four fourteen. We learn about this multi-headed sea serpent, right? And Isaiah uh, twenty-seven one, we see that uh, we learn about Leviathan there as well. Uh, it's the same thing here. Leviathan is this beast that lives beneath the earth in the waters, right? And so it's interesting. Okay, so we've got this association with water and underworld, right? Guess where it is that this beast takes Jonah. Takes him to the underworld. Takes him to the underworld. To, yep. to Sheol, right? So listen to Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter two. So in Jonah chapter, well, Jonah chapter one, you know, he's he's thrown into the sea, right? Like the the everybody's like, 
God, the you know the people that he's with are pagans. They're like yep. the gods are angry. Yeah, the gods are right? raging right now. Right, like there's something going on here. We're in this this you know this storm. The gods are angry, and Jonah's like, listen, God, the true God is angry because I'm on the run. Throw me into the waters, right? And so the sea beast comes up, the great fish uh, eats Jonah. The Leviathan eats Jonah. And then we see Jonah pray from the belly of this beast in Jonah chapter 2. And listen to what he says. He says, uh, I called out to the Lord in my distress. Out of my, uh, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol. You know what the biblical underworld is called? Sheol. Right? Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, they passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the root at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever yet you brought my brought up my life from the pit right this is all underworld language right you're even going to see this in in you know different places in scripture where the underworld the deep part of the underworld right like tartarus is going to it gets called things like the pit right so this is like we get this type of sea language water language applied to the underworld and, and things like chaos right I mean, that's what, I mean, think of every story in the Bible where water is involved. What is it all? It's always linked to chaos in some ways. Yeah. Noah's flood, chaos. It wipes out the, it wipes out, you know, all of the people, right? Even the same thing with, um, with uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, right? It's deliverance for Israel. But what is it for the Egyptians? It's chaos, yep. right? Jesus, Jesus is up on top of the mountain, right? And the, the disciples are in the boat and the, they have the storm on there. What's the waters doing? It's chaos, right? Yeah. So Jonah is swallowed by a fish and where does the fish take him? To the underworld, right? This is, so you see this you know, reflected in other places in scripture where it talks about people like the Philistines. Now, Philistines mean sea people, <laughs> Okay, and so they are called the sea people. Why? Because they are going to be agents of chaos. And not only that, they live, they're coastal people. Yeah. But but they also are pictured as, it's in, the scripture talks about them flooding into the land, right, and causing chaos. It, the language is interesting. They're flooding into the land yeah. like what? Like, yeah, I see it. Like water, right? So that's the Bible's category. And it's all, you even see this in the symbolism of baptism. You know what baptism means, right? It's a death, yeah. right? You're plunged into the waters in the same way that Jesus goes into the underworld, right? Right. Jesus goes into the heart of the earth like Jonah for three days, right? And in baptism, well, he, he goes into the heart of the earth, right? Below the earth, the waters below the earth, same way that Jonah does. And then he comes back three days later, right? He rises again. That's the symbolism of baptism. Baptism does the same thing. We are plunged beneath the waters of the earth, which symbolize death, the underworld, chaos. We die 
And then Paul says we're raised to walk in newness with Christ. That's what he says in Romans chapter 6. That's not my thoughts or my opinions. That's exactly what he says. So water takes on this type of symbolism for underworld, for, for death, and that's really essential for understanding the world that you live in, yeah. right? Like if you don't have those categories, first off, if you don't have this cosmology in your head, you're just not going to understand a lot of things, right? right? And if you don't have the cosmology in your mind, you're definitely not going to understand biblical symbolism and understanding the nature of the creation that God has made, Right. Like, so whenever you see, you know, uh, like in Revelation, you see like that Babylon is going to be, it calls it, it's like, it's a filthy bird is what it calls it, right? Why is it, why is that symbolism being, being used for Babylon, right? Well, if you have biblical symbolism in mind and the whole biblical narrative in mind, you realize that there was this spiritual being event that happened at Babylon, right? Sons of God put over the nations, right? That whole thing. And what do they do? They fall. And then after that, you know, they're heavenly beings, right? So they're like filthy birds. They're flying in the heavens, right? So if you don't understand that, you're not going to be able to interpret the Bible nor creation the way that you need to. So I don't know if you got anything you want to add to that. If you see similar symbolism in the world of the occult. I mean, if you look at Sumerian, Babylonian, Mesopotamian culture, I mean, all of their deities or spiritual beings all have bird-like references to it. Like even in their depictions, they're they're winged. They're like feathery attributes. Yeah, no doubt. Um, And, you know, there's there's some of that overlap with, you know, different spiritual beings in the Bible too. You know, so I, I can definitely see it. And so that's that's the that's the cosmology of the world. That's really the nature of the world that we live in. That's the symbolism of the world. And now we need to talk about the powers of the world, right? And so we've talked about this before, which is uh, the powers of the world are this these angelic beings that God has, who are stewards for God, right? So... Um, this is going to lead us into a conversation, a deeper conversation on the angelic hierarchies, right? But um, so we'll, we'll talk about, we've talked about this before, but we'll talk about it a little bit deeper now. We're going to talk about it a little bit more even on today's uncut edition of the Sword and Staff. But um, so here's how the, the angelic, how the world works. Um, God did not just create the world and just set the laws of physics yeah. into motion and just back away and let it go. Right, like some watchmaker made it, and now he's just after he's made his creation, he's backed away from it. And now he just lets it do its own thing. Right, that is not even remotely how. And that's sad because that's usually how, like people on, on the whole, kind of look at it. Even in Christian circles, like God yeah. is just very pulled back. Well, right. It's it. They. It's. I think that people think that God created the world and he was involved with the creation of it, but he is in. Like no ways, like active in that creation in any right. ways. And if you see people say that he's like God did this, or I saw a miracle, or something like that, people, especially in our camp in the reform camp, yeah. are very skeptical of that. Oh yeah, right. And I think that what that is is that is a demythologized view of God in the world. It really is that is really influenced by secularism. Um, like if you like, listen, we are Christians, right? And we, we believe in a God who not only creates, but is active in the world, 
right? And so we should, of all people, we shouldn't be skeptical of things like this, right? Right. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't abuses out there, right? Like, we do see abuses out there in the charismatic world, extreme charismatic world i should say not all charismatics are crazy and, and wild yeah. um but uh we do see abuses but that doesn't mean that god isn't active in the world right and that there aren't um powers at work in the world and that things like miracles don't and can't happen right so to uh, let's just discount that right off the bat okay so nobody throughout christian history has just viewed the world as this is just something god created and now that he's created it, it's now just governed by the laws of physics. Yeah. He's just kind of sitting and watching it all like go he's down. Like he's spinning and just sitting back and watching that, it go. That's exactly yeah. right. Like he, he dropped the battery in the thing, and now the cogs and the thing that's in it just take over, yeah. and he just sits and watches it. That's not the biblical view of the world, right? Nor is that the view of the world that we see throughout Christian history. Throughout no, that's the not Christian. the view of the ancient world, period, yeah. Christian or not. Yeah. No, and... uh. That'll be a good transition into the way that the ancients have always saw this is God delegates the operations of the world to the angels, right? That's like most Christians don't have a place for angels in their theology. And the reason why is because they've become secular, right? right. Like it's, they've got this watchmaker view of God where he makes the watch and he backs up and now, you know, so, but that's not how Christians have traditionally viewed it. The way that Christians have traditionally viewed it is there is this angelic hierarchy, and these beings, these spiritual beings, are are carrying out the will of God, right? So we'll we'll talk about the angelic hierarchy. So we've talked about it before, but we're going to talk about it again, right? So we've got this hierarchy, and there's these three choirs, right? And in the first choir, you have the seraphim, the cherubim, and the thrones, right? These are the ones who are most closely associated with God, Right, they uh, they are the chair, the seraphim are the shining ones. Right, um, you see the, the in the scriptures that the closer one is in the hierarchy of being towards God, they end up yep. shining. Right, you see it with Moses; he goes up onto Mount Sinai, and he comes down, and what yep. happens? His face exactly. is shining. Right, you see that with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, comes back down, and his face is shining. Well, why is that? Because the closer we get to God, that light, it, it's its kind of, I hate to say it, it's kind of like, you know, in some ways, like the like in Lord of the Rings with, you know, Galadriel, she sits under the light of the two trees. Oh, dude, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really similar. In Just some like way. that. Yeah. And so I feel like everything is a Lord of the Didn't Rings. We have a Lord reference. of the Rings reference for everything. Yeah. And I'm not mad at it. Yeah. So well, it's, it's because Tolkien is, is distinctly Christian right. in, in what he's doing. Like it's, so anyway, but so that's what's going on here. We have these shining ones, right? The seraphim, which are the closest to God. And then we've got the cherubs, which guards sacred space, right? Where, does, where is it God stations the cherub? Eden, right? What is that? Sacred space. Where, whenever Israel builds the tabernacle and the temple, what do the cherubs guard? They guard the sacred space, right? You have to pass through the veil that has the cherub on it, which guards the holy place, yep. right? So that's what they do. And thrones, they're the lowest ones here, but it's the very similar with them as well, right? They are a part of this hierarchy. They are the ones who are closest to God, right, in the hierarchy of being. 
If you don't know what I mean by hierarchy of being, you need to go listen to Jonathan Pajot talk about the hierarchy yeah. of being. Um, so like that's maybe a category that you guys aren't familiar with. But anyway, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more. That's uh, past the scope of today's episode. But, but basically, though, um, so in terms of hierarchy, these are the ones who are closest to God. Right. And then in the second hierarchy or the second choir of angels, we have, and there's some differences here in different Christian traditions, um, which we've mentioned before, but we have the powers, the dominions, and the virtues. And some traditions, like the Eastern, uh, Eastern Orthodox, they put the principalities there, but yeah. it doesn't really matter. Um, but so what's going on with this hierarchy, this, this choir, is they are carrying out God's will in the creation. Okay. Right, so we have this first hierarchy, which are in the presence of God. Now, this second one is carrying out the will of God in the creation. Okay, so you can see how there's this hierarchy. We're starting with God. Now we're flowing out into the world, right? Out into the creation. Now this is going to narrow in in the next choir, but but what what they do here is the powers they oversee this stuff, right? They are the like kind of like the general, right? Yep. Kind of like that. And then the dominions, um, they they are kind of tasked with the the uh, the carrying out of some of this stuff. And then the 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 virtues are kind of like the good elemental spirits, right? They are the ones who uh, the way that the Christian tradition has always worded it is they are the ones who are over the elements and then miracles, right? Uh, so here's an example of this on the way here. I don't know if you've you've seen things like this before, um, but as on the way here, I was driving, and it's a windy day, right? It's kind of there's been some rain and stuff like yeah. that. But on the way here, you ever see like the the wind blowing kind oh, of yeah. in a circle, and you see yep. the leaves get carried up in like a little kind of like torme- tornado, right? Um, see, as a modern, it's really tempting to look at that and say, "Oh, God set the law of." you know, physics and motion and gravity and, you know, the way that the world operates. And that's all that is, right? That's just the wind doing what it's supposed to do according to the yeah, laws. Yeah, like an echo God. of something he right. set to into right. motion Which, which it, it is that, Yeah, but it's much more than that. Right. Right. The way that the, the, the Christian tradition would have looked at that is it is much more mythologized right. than that. Right, exactly. it's much more enchanted than just laws governing the creation. What they would have said is, no, that's the virtues, right? That's the spiritual beings who are at work in the creation, guiding the winds, doing the things that God set in place. But they are the force behind this that are making these things happen. That's an entirely different way of viewing an event like that than just thinking of it as just the wind, right? I mean, just thinking about the heavenly host, I mean, the multitudes of angels that it describes. I mean, what do, what do these people think that these angels, these beings are doing all day? Most I mean, of them, most of them think, I think that most people that I know think that they're just in heaven singing. That's really about it. But that's because they don't have this entire hierarchy of being in mind. They don't even understand that there are different types of spiritual beings and angels are actually the low ones on the totem yeah. pole, right? The ones that are closest to man. Yeah, seems to be the ones we're familiar with most. Right, and we've even got that mixed up. Yeah. Right, These are the ones closest to man, right? Uh, which we're going to talk about that here in a minute more. But these are the ones that are closer to man. Like, these aren't the ones that are contemplating God in heaven singing the holy, holy, holies. Right. That's the seraphim. 
That's an Isaiah six. Yeah, the right? ones that we interact with as mankind are that's a completely different ball game. Yeah, than- that's right. Like it's and it's because we just don't have an understand. We have an egalitarian view of the heavens, which we talked about in our last episode. We talked about the heavens, but we just have this egalitarian view of the heavens, and that there's like no hierarchy here. You know, and that's not the way that Christianity has viewed this stuff, right? right? Like there is hierarchy among the angels and they have different tasks. And for the most part, that's what their names mean. It talks about the task that they've been given. And so, but anyway, that's kind of an example of that in some ways. Like, you know, the one that I gave you a minute ago, like it would be, it's the same thing I would say even with like, you know, uh, the other elements too, Right. Like the wind, uh, or you see that like with the the waves crashing on the beach, and you think that it's just the ocean doing what the ocean does because yeah, God... even in like ancient divination practices that's based on the elements, they would uh, present questions to the ether to the spiritual beings, and then watch the movements of the elements, like the flames and the sea, and divine answers from that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm recalling some stuff that I've seen. Uh, searching into the occult. And it seems to me like the, the occult gets that. Yeah. Right? Like, they understand that there are angels associated with the elements. Right? Right. Um, you know, like, I, I've seen that. Like, I've seen, you know, the whole pinnacle thing. That's yeah, just like everything can be used as a divination tool because there is a, literally a spiritual being behind the movements of everything. Yeah. Well, and so, like, obviously, Christianity has a tweaked view of this in some ways. Yeah. But... Christianity has understood this as well, right? And it's not until now, as modern people, that we've just kind of chucked this to the side and ended up with a demythologized view of creation and really a deistic view of God. Like a God who is far away, not at all at work in the creation, and certainly doesn't delegate things off to other people, right? right. And. I would say that that's one of the things that makes God sovereign. Like, I think that a lot of people in our reform camp think, well, if God delegates that off to spiritual beings, like somehow that takes away from right. his sovereignty. Yeah. But the thing is, is no, it's actually a much greater statement of his sovereignty exactly. because he does have the authority to delegate these things off to other spiritual beings, and he is above them. Right? It clearly so, shows his hand in, in everything if he yeah. can delegate those tasks out. That's right. So the way that, that like... Aquinas would say it, and others would say it. He is the primary cause. They, the angelic beings that he delegates these things off to, are the secondary cause, right? right? They're the, he is the primary. He is the he is the first mover, right? He yep. is that kind of thing. And these are his. Um, well, yeah, they're they're the secondary cause. So, it's these things are coming from God, but they're also coming through the hands of intermediaries, right? which are the angelic beings. And so whenever you see the waves crashing down on the beach, you shouldn't just think, oh, there's the waves just materialistically doing what waves have always done, governed by the laws of, you know, that God has set in place. It is that, but it's also that there are spiritual beings that God has delegated these things off to. And the governance of the universe has been delegated to this second hierarchy of angels, right? Right. And there are angels overseeing this. There are angels who are uh, carrying these things out. And there are some who are even closer to humanity, which actually interact with us. And so that'll take us into this conversation on the, the, the last part of the angelic hierarchy, which is the, the third choir, which consists of the principalities, 
the archangels and the angels, right? And so we see these in scripture as well. <coughs> and we <laughs> could not got struggled there, uh, but we see them. Uh, we see them. These are the angels in scripture that we see interacting with mankind, right? So we're coming down now <clears throat> on this hierarchy of being, right? We've worked our way out from God into the cosmos, into the world, now to man, right? Right. See how this hierarchy begins to taper down. And so uh, it's it's uh, very much like the river that flows out of Eden in some ways. It flows from the throne of God out into the land and then out into the world. It's very similar to that in some ways. Most people will probably hear that and just be like, I don't even know what he's talking yeah, about right now. Yeah. But, you know, we gotta, we'll got we talk about some more of this stuff. But uh, anyway, need to listen to Jonathan Peugeot on some of this stuff because yeah. he, he, he was the one that connected a lot of this stuff for me. Um, but anyway... So, but this hierarchy is the one that is delegated with the ta- with the task of um, interacting with mankind. So, principalities are the ones who well, they're princes. That's what the word principality means. A principality we've heard of a monarchy. That's a rule of a king, right? A principality is ruled by princes, right? And so that's like we see that in Daniel ten, right? With the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia, right? Michael, who's the prince of Israel, you know that kind of thing. Um, these are spiritual beings who are tasked with the governments of man, right? So we've talked about this before, but whenever you see two nations going to war with one another, it's much, much more than just, again, very secular view here, just mankind fighting with with each other because they're sinful. That's certainly a part of it. But behind the sinfulness of mankind are spiritual beings. It's a much much more enchanted view of what's going on here, right? A much more enchanted view of the creation. What is going on here is these are spiritual beings who are also at war with one another. And some of these places aren't ruled by good principalities. Some of them are ruled by bad principalities. And some of these bad principalities are even at war with one another and want the authority and the dominion that that principality has. You know? It's the same thing with the you know different groups of terrorists going to different to yeah. war with different groups of terrorists. Why? Because they want the stuff that they have. It's the same thing with these spiritual beings, right? And so that's what's going on here. You know, like these rival gangs trying to get more territory. That's right. You get more street cred, yeah. right? It's the same thing, right? All of these te- like Allah is a principality, right? Yeah. He's the principality of this Arabic, you know, that that it's Arabic world, right? Um, I have a whole post about that. <laughs> That I wrote at one point. Yeah, so I, I don't, that. Yeah, I don't want to get into the, There's so much that, just to get into with all of that. But all of these different, you know, beings are, are those things. They're, they're principalities. They're these spiritual beings. And some of them have fallen. And some of them haven't. But um, but these are beings that a lot of people, uh, like, worship as, as gods, right? And, like, you see this in Psalm 82, where God says to these spiritual beings who were a part of his divine counsel, he says, you, uh, he says, well, let me let me actually just read it here. Um, but these are the gods that he installed over the nations at Babel, who were principalities. Um, but he says to them, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. Right? So these are beings that the nations refer to as gods. Uh, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Uh, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All of the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you were gods, son of the most high. 
all of you, nevertheless, shall die like men and fall like any prince. Right? Even though you're the principalities and the princes of the nations, even though you are considered the gods of the people, you let the nations walk in darkness. Right. And now, because of that, you're going to fall like any prince. Right? So that's what's uh that's what's going on here in this like these beings um they're they're associated with the governance of nations and with peoples and whenever you see nations warring it's much much more than just nations warring there is this spiritual dynamic behind all of it um actually i saw a picture the other uh, rebellions and conflicts behind the rebellion and conflict yeah well it's that's exactly right um there was a a uh from Peter Kraft uh, that we actually shared on our Instagram. It's a quote that really gets to the heart of this, and I'll actually read it for us. Um, Let me find it here real quick. Um, But it really cuts right at the heart of this. He says it this way. He says, We've lost the ancient vision of St. John in Revelation and St. Augustine in the City of God. The war on earth is a manifestation of the war in heaven. The war between Sauron and Gandalf is a battle within the older and greater war behind Melkor and Iluvatar, right? The idea of the Christian knight in arms for the defense of the good is one of the great Christian ideas. For ancients, a just war could be glorious. So basically, he's Peter Kraft, who is one of the smartest people in, in Christendom right now, even though he's a Roman Catholic and we have disagreements with him. Um uh, he's saying the same exact thing that we're saying, right? And the reason why he's saying this is because, well, this has always been a Christian thing. And he points out, we've lost the vision of St. John. I mean, St. John in Revelation, this is what he sees in Revelation 20, chapter 12, right? Like, in, So, I mean, recall the entire political thing with, with Herod wanting to put all of the babies to death because yeah. he heard Jesus was going to be born, right? So what does he do? He's he's like, oh, well, we're just going to we're gonna kill all of the kids, right? And uh, what do they do? Well, Jesus and his family flee to Egypt, right? Well, John, looking at this view from the spiritual lens that we're talking about in Revelation 12, sees that there's much, much more going on than just the whole political, geopolitical aspect. He sees behind it spiritual beings. Listen to what he says in Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. We'll go to verse 6. He says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. This is Mary. Um we can talk about why she's given this symbolism. Yeah. Well, Mary's get well, I'll just basically say this. The reason why Mary's given this symbolism of this queen queen symbolism. She's got this crown and stars, right? And this whole thing. Um well, there's also, there's some reference here to the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. Um like in in uh, jo- uh not Jonah, but uh, Joseph's dream at the end of Genesis. He has this dream and there's these stars in it, right, which are his brothers, which are going to go on and become the 12 tribes yeah, of 12 Israel. 12 stars, 12 tribes. That's right, 12 stars, 12 tribes. Even in, uh, they were actually associated with constellations in the ancient world at one point, too. Yeah. Um, and different, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but if you actually, get, yeah, well, if you go back and if you look at, um, you know, a lot of um, uh, places that Jews worshipped uh, in Jesus' day, they actually had the 12 constel- They had twelve constellations. I think we actually have an episode for December about that. Yeah, yeah, we'd been talking about that. Oh. But anyway, 
In Joseph's dream, uh, he sees his brothers bowing, and it's these stars. Yeah. Right? So it's taken the same symbolism there. So she's wearing the twelve tribes of Israel. You know, um, why is it they they get star language attached to them? That's what happens whenever you have union with Christ. You become sons of God, right? Right, which replaced the fallen sons of God. So you're taken up you into the, God's the council. star language. Yeah, you get the star language, right? Which is going to touch on the identity of man here in a minute that we're going to talk about because we're a part of the creation too, right? But um, that's what happens. Um, so she's got these stars on her head, right? And she's wearing this crown. Why is she wearing this crown? Because in the ancient world, you had what was called the queen mother. So whenever uh, David was the king of Israel, Bathsheba was not the queen. His mother was the queen. And you have this long-standing tradition of the queen mother. right? That's how ancient Israel actually worked. And you actually see this explicitly in the scriptures. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit or further at some point. even see it in uh, uh, British monarchy. Queen Elizabeth's mother was the queen mother. Yeah. Before she passed away. Yeah. And so it's still a thing. Yeah. Right. So it's it's not, you know, you see it in First Kings two twenty. Solomon, uh, his mother, you know, la- later on she becomes the queen. Yeah. Right. Like she's seated at the throne of his right hand in First Kings two twenty, um, but he makes a, a request to her. Right. So that's the reason why Mary has this queen imagery attached to her here in revelation 12 she's the queen now like she's the queen of of heaven like she is the the queen who stands at jesus right hand like that's that's what's going on here and you may say wait, wait, wait a second this isn't mary but like keep reading the text and it says that she's crying with birth pains and agony and giving birth now we're going to learn who she's going to give birth to here in a second but going on it says another sign appeared in heaven Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head and seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth she, uh, so that she bore her child that he might devour. So now we've got this other character here, right? We've got this great red dragon. His tail has swept down a third of the stars. Stars, again, are reference, references to heavenly beings. He's cast down other beings who have fallen with him. Uh, and then verse five, she gave birth to a male child. So this queen, who did she give birth to? A male child who was to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne. Now, who else could that be other than than Christ? Who gives birth to Christ? Like that? Exactly. Who gives birth to Christ? Obviously it's Mary. Like, I know that people are probably uncomfortable by that because it elevates Mary, but the yeah, reality that's what is... I was thinking when you were talking about that. It's like people tend to really cringe well, when yeah. you apply that language to her. Listen, this isn't like Maryolatry or, or like... you know, I, I get it. Like people are skeptical of Roman Catholicism right. and the, the ven- super veneration of Mary to where it's you know, you know, akin to worship in some ways. But this is not that, right? This is the mother of God, right? This is the Theotokos, right? Yeah. This is, she is the mother of God. Right, so this is what's going on with Mary. This is, and there is a whenever you do biblical theology, there is a long-standing tradition of the Queen Mother. So that's why she has this because Jesus is called up to the right hand of God. He's ruling the nations with the rod of iron. Revelation twelve says, and so she's the queen at his right hand. Right. So anyway, but that's not my point. Uh, I, that's a whole side. That's a side quest. Uh, yeah. But. But basically, it says this, though. 
uh, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for uh, by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Uh, I'm not going to get into a whole conversation about eschatology, but obviously this is a, is a spiritual view of the event that happens whenever Herod is attempting to kill the children uh, whenever Jesus is born because he's trying to snuff him out, right. right? And so what John does is he sees this as this spiritual conflict behind the geopolitical conflict, and that's what Peter Kreeft is saying. We've lost that, yep. and it's, which is so, so true, right? We have lost that. We have a demythologized view of the creation, and it's sad. Yeah, I mean, we've all, today, people hear terms like mythology, yeah. and they just see it as something completely divorced from truth. That's right. Yeah, we can't, you know, the only way to not mythologize, basically, is to not be a Christian. Right. You know, like, we all mythologize in some ways. Whenever, mythology does not mean stories that are false, by the way. Mythology simply is a way of telling a story that has deep meaning and and does that and answers like people refer to to mythology as the stories that answer questions right and the, that brings great clarity and truth right like brings deep meaning to things that's what mythology like so for example it whenever it tells a story and be able to encapsulate the deep mysteries that are in the story. Yeah. Tell it like that. That's exactly right. Um, so that's what pe- what people like Tolkien and Lewis meant whenever they said that tr- Christianity was the true myth. Yeah. Um, they didn't by saying it was the true myth. They're saying it's true, right? It's not. It's not false like the other myths, but it's myth because it gives answers to all of the questions that humans need answers to. Like, why am I here? Who am I? What is my identity? All of those things, which we're going to talk about again a little bit here in a minute, but. Um, but yeah, so that's what principalities do. We spend a whole lot of time on principalities. Yeah, um, a lot of rabbit holes. Yeah, but that's what principalities do, um, and we've lost that, and we need to regain that. And hopefully, this episode helps you in thinking about that in a different way. But, um, but anyway, so you know, below the principalities, we have, um, you know, we have the archangels and the angels. Now, um, you can even throw in. Um, guardian angels into this as well we see in scriptures that these are the ones that interact with mankind right so the archangel michael um he interacts with daniel in daniel chapter 10 um these are higher forms of angels higher uh higher ranking angels um but we see all throughout scripture various different places where angels interact with humanity right I mean, it happens all the time. It happens with Abraham and the three angels who come talk to him. I mean, it happens with Mary whenever, you know. Uh, I mean, it even suggested that it suggests that people could be, like, in communication with an angel and not even be aware of it. Well, like I, yeah, I mean, well, that happens very frequently. Yeah. You know, you see all the time in Scripture where they're mistaken as being people-like, right? Like, they don't have wings, like that you see depicted in statues and things like that, but they're usually depicted as as being very human-like. And because of that, uh, people mistake them as men. And you see in the scriptures that it's entirely possible to knowingly entertain angels. Yep. You know, it talks about, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, let me find it here real quick. Uh, you know, Hebrews 13.2 says that we shouldn't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because whenever we do that, that some people have actually shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. That should really change the way yeah. that you view the world. It really should. That should. I mean, like, you may possibly be showing hospitality to an angel and you don't even know it. 
And I promise you modern Christians aren't thinking about things this no. way. Like, I'm telling you, like, if we don't have a category for this, we are not Christians. Like, we do not have the Christian worldview in mind. We have a secular worldview in mind, and this is a huge problem, a huge, huge problem. So, but angels are the ones that interact closely with man, and it's possible to entertain them and not even know it. Yeah. Um, so, um, now we also learn in Scripture that there are angels that are appointed over um, over churches. We we see this explicitly in Revelation uh, chapter chapters one. I think it's chapter one where we see that there are um, different churches. Uh, you know, we're writing to the seven churches in Asia. John is he's writing about tribulation that's about to come upon them. Um, and then we see that there are churches that have stars over them, and then Jesus talks about removing their stars, right? And he actually writes, the, each of the letters in Revelation, aren't act, they're actually written to the angels in the church. Like chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, and then to the church of Smyrna in yep. verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, to the church in Pergamum, write, write to the angel saying this, the church in Thyatira, right to the angel of the church there. So there are angels over churches. Like we're sitting in a church right now. There is an angel over this church. Yep. Like that's a whole different way of viewing your church. Um, you know, in the Christian tradition too, we also talk about things like guardians, guardian angels, right? That there are angels that are that protect the people of God, and that's what Michael was doing in Daniel ten. You know. Um, he talks about I'm the print, you know, I'm the one that fights for your for God's people. So, yeah. Um, the, so I hope you see that this is this is a whole different way of viewing the world. Yeah. It really it really is a whole different way of viewing the world. But we're convinced that it's the right way to view the world. And I realize that it may make people uncomfortable to hear these things. But the reality is this: like, what are you going to do? Are you like, do you think that that like? the secular worldview that you have is better than what the church has historically said about these things, right? Like that's really a type of chronological snobbery in yeah. some ways. Like, like what like, do like, we really think we know better? Like we're so enlightened that we think that we know better because, you know, some scientist doesn't see a spiritual being and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's not the way that we've historically viewed things. And I'm contending today that this is a much better and much more biblical way of understanding. Oh, yeah. The church these. today in modernism, it's, it's really the smallest minority in overall history of how these things are viewed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this leads us to the, our last section before we get into the application today of, well, we've talked a little bit about our identity in the creation, right? We've talked about the cosmology of the creation. We've talked about the nature of the creation, how God created the world. And we've talked about the symbolism of the creation, how he, like God uses his creation for uh, categories for understanding symbolism. We've talked about the powers of the creation, the angels. We're going to talk about in the Uncut episode how we're not the only person who have said these things. But um, but what about us, right? Like, what about who we are? Like, what are what are we in this creation? Well, as we've already alluded to, that if you are in Jesus Christ, um, then you are one of the stars, right? Who has been brought into God's divine counsel? Paul talks about in Romans eight that we are now sons of God, right? Who has not been given a spirit of fear which is a spiritual being, yep. 
We've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption. God has adopted us into his family, and he has fixed us in the heavens with Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians. He's fixed us in the heavenlies, seated us in the heavenlies with him, is what he says. Um, and we are part of his council. We are the stars. We, we, uh, that's what, what, what happens. Uh, Paul says that one day we're going to judge angels. He tells that to the Corinthians, right? Whenever the Corinthians bring to him their problems and like they're at war with one another, fighting with one another. He's like, he's like, guys, like, don't you know that you should be able to work this out? Like one day you're right. going to judge angels. Like you can't even judge among yourselves, you know, with this. He's like it's one d- cosmic fish to fry. Let's let this go. Right. That's yep. exactly right. And so, um, that's our identity. That's who we are. This is who God has made us. Like we're like, let me, let me tell you, you are not a worm. If you're in Christ Jesus, like I, I see this all the time in our reform camps where, where people just de- Paul Washer fans just jumped off the building. Oh boy. Um, where, where people just bash on and degrade the image of God in believers, right? Where they try to make you feel like where, like you are nothing much more than a worm. And that's not the Bible's picture of mankind. Mankind is the apex of the creation week. Like we are the one thing that is separate from all of the other creations, right? And like we are the only ones who get the image of God, right? I mean, how much closer can you get than bearing the image of God? Nothing else bears this image. We do, right? Right. And not only do we bear the image of God, but God says now that if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been united to him by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And not only have you been united to him, but now you have become sons. You get the divine counsel language. You are a now, you are ruling and reigning with Christ, right? And we talked about this. You know, there are thrones in heaven for the saints, we talked about this last week, right? The saints in heaven, or not last week, but in our last episode yep. on um, re-mythologizing, uh, re-enchanting the heavens, right? We talked about the saints in heaven, and there's thrones there for the saints in heaven. Why? Because we have been brought in to God's counsel, right? Like That's the reason why Mary gets such high symbolism attached to her. Right. Why does Mary get the symbolism? Because she is the queen mother of Jesus, Right? In the same way that Bathsheba was the queen mother to Solomon. She's the queen at his right hand. So we're his God's sons now. And so because of that, our identity is defined by him and not by anybody else. It's not even defined by your favorite reform preacher who thinks you're a worm. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Paul Washer. Sorry, Paul Washer. But that's we're you know, we were created by God and intended by God to be the stewards and the, the, the kings of the creation, right? I mean, think about what it was he told Adam to do. Like, he told Adam to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to have dominion over it, to rule over it like a king, right? Right. God hasn't just thrown this away because of the fall. God repeats this. I just, I just preached through Genesis chapter 8, okay? God repeats the dominion mandate to Noah and his family in Genesis. Actually, it's in Genesis 9-1. But in Genesis chapter 9, and chapter 9, verse 1, he tells Noah and his family, after they get out of the ark, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fear the earth, and that the fear and the dread of them would be upon every creature on the earth. 
Why did he repeat that to him? Because it still stands that even though we may be sinful, even though we may be fallen, God has not casted away his plan for us to be his stewards who rule over the creation on his behalf and that he has given us an identity that we don't deserve. Right. Nothing can change that. You know, Paul talks about in Romans 8 that nothing in heaven and on earth can change the fact that we are sons of God. Like nothing in heaven above, nothing in hell below. He talks about not even rulers, you know, that whole thing. You know, he's convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, he says in Romans 8. But so that's our our identity here. Now, it is true that if you're not in Christ Jesus, then you are a child of wrath, right? Like Paul says that in Ephesians 2. He says, we were once all children of wrath who was live, living under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, being influenced by this principality, yeah. right, who's over the air, Um we were under that influence, right? And we were children of wrath, not children of God. But he talks about, but now, by grace through faith, we have been made whole. We have been brought into union with Christ. We have been saved. We have been justified. And it's not by our works. It's by grace. So that's our identity, right? And we're a part of this creation. And that, and think about that, what that does. That, that re-mythologizes our identity, right? Right. Like it changes the way that we, we view ourselves. It, it gives us a re-enchanted view of who we are. You know, the world tries to define us by the work that we accomplish or the titles that we wear or the things that we don't do, right? But that's not how God defines us. God defines us based on our union with him. And what is true of him is true of us. Right? That's what this whole head and body thing means, right? It, scripture talks about, like, Christ is the head, we are the body. Like, think about that. Like, what's true of your head is also true of your body, right? This is me, yeah. right? Like, this is a part of Josh. Like, it, there's not this, like, that's the same thing. What's true of Jesus Christ, if you are in him by faith, then what's true of him is true of you. Like, you are a son. You are justified. You have been made clean. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You have a new identity if you're in him. And that should be encouraging. And may it be that we never let somebody strip this away from us because of because of the influence of secularism and because we want to be a part of the cool club. Right. You know? Yep. So, all right. So this should bring us to the application section. I mean, that was pretty applicable, yeah. honestly. Uh, that was pretty, pretty applicable. But um, this brings us to the application section of today's episode. So now, I want to say this, and I think you'll probably be able to speak to this probably in some ways that I won't, honestly, just because of your past. Um, there are some, some dangers and temptations with the creation, though, right? Like Paul explicitly talks about in Romans chapter 1 that there are people who have um, claimed to be wise but and have become fools um, for they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so God gave them over to their lust and their impurity. So idolatry is a problem, right? We can elevate creation too high. Yeah. Right? And so that's something that we need to be aware of, right? Um, 
you know, and this is something that we see in the ancient world where, you know, they, they didn't look high enough in some ways. And right. so they bowed down to the sun, moon, and stars, which aren't, aren't gods. They are... Like they see the structure, the truth. Yeah. The things reflected in those things, but they don't take it high enough. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and I see that today resurfacing in like the, you know, neo-pagan movement that's coming out, and especially in the resurgence of... Um, you know, uh, pay, uh, the Norse, Norse stuff that you see, like, especially in people like Jack Donovan, yeah. um, who I appreciate, I appreciate some of his work, but that he's done on masculinity and that kind of thing. But, but you see like this, like, uh, solar idealism in some ways where, you know, it's really a kind of a, it's not high enough, you know what I mean? And so we can do that too, if we're not careful, right? Like it's good. It's good that we have this high view of creation. God created all things and he created it good. And he created mankind, it says, very good, right? So it's we should have a high view of creation, but we must not take it so far that we're worshiping the creator or the creation rather than the creator, right? And you see it with the whole thing of removing, uh, like, dogma and theism and just honoring, like you hear it in the New Age circles, the universe. Yeah, that's it. That's it right there. Yep. That's, that's absolutely it. Um, you know, I, well... I probably ought not go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> but I, I know, I know people who are in that movement and who, <clears throat> um, honestly, like really kind of worship the creation. Like they, I mean, they attribute like, you know, healing properties to stones and the angels who are over these stones and, you know, and not only that, but like, I, like I have some like family, well, not necessarily like extended family, I would say, um, who was involved in some of this type of stuff, you know, and, you know, some of the things that I would tell them were, you know, they're very into the new age and that type of thing and the whole healing crystal stuff and, you know, all of that. And, you know, one of the things I would say is, you know, like you're worshiping, like you're looking to that rock to heal you yeah. whenever you should be looking to the capital R rock above that. That to 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 do that, right? And so we can get too carried away. We can have too high of a view of creation if we're not careful. So that's something we need to be on the watch for. Another thing, and this is something that I'm really amped to say, is oh boy. Um, remember whenever God put the whole sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, and He put them for signs and for seasons. Yep, they're there for a reason. Yep, right. They are there to show that there are transitions happening right on in the creation. I mean, and you see that really with the, uh, you know, the summer solstice and then the autumn equinox and then the winter solstice and then the spring equinox. Actually the equinox, not too far off. Yeah. We're not too far away from it. Um, but it says the scriptures say that God put them there for signs and symbols and for seasons. Yep. You know, in the ancient world, people paid attention to those things. Right, they they planted during certain times, and they harvested during certain times. And guess what they did for another part of time? They rested for a right. part of time. You know, winter was that kind of like. Here's kind of how it worked. You know, springtime rolled around. You know, that's the time to to plant. I mean, the right? seasons of life were reflected in the seasons of creation. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you plant. You know, in the spring, and then. During the summer, things are growing into the, the beauty of what they should be, right? Like the prime of life. It's right, like the prime of life. And then, boom, you have that harvest season in the fall, right? And it's the thing, all of the work has paid off. Yeah, and it's, li it's likened to like human middle age. Like, that's those right. are the, they even call them the, the, the middle, 
yeah, middle age, yep. middle years, that, that golden, glory, the golden the years. Autumn years, yeah. The, God, yeah, the, the, the autumn years, the golden years. Um, and you see that reflected in the trees, too. Like yep. They become golden, right? And it's uh, glorified in some ways. And um, then after that, there's a season where things die. That's a season to rest, right? Right. And I think that now, as moderns, we don't pay attention to the creation anymore. Like, we have this tendency to elevate it too high in some places, and then we very much don't pay attention to it at all in other places. And that causes us to live like we're the creators rather right. than a part of the creation. We are not creators. We, we are sub-creators, right? Tolkien talks about this. Like, God is the one who creates out of nothing. We cannot create out of nothing. We, we create sub-creatively. Like, we take things that God has already done, and we can create from that. But we're tempted to live as creators. Like, we create things, and we don't have boundaries, and we don't have things that we need to listen to. And what happens is, like, in the world that we're in today, we don't pay attention to signs and seasons. We don't listen to what the creation is telling us to do. Hey, Right now is the time to harvest. Next is the time to slow down and to rest and to prepare for the next year. Right. Right. Now is the season to store up, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think that recovering a slow down lifestyle that's governed by the seasons would be something that could be very helpful for a lot of people. Like in some ways we really started doing this some whenever COVID hit where we, you know, we, we planted a garden and then we, you know, we got to harvest that and we got to store some up for winter and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we did that again this year. And I have found living a natural rhythm with the creation that God has created to be just the thing that I needed to slow my life down and to get out of the craziness of the modern world in some ways. Um, and it's I mean, re- this was just the pattern of ancient life all over the world. I mean, it, regardless of culture, they all observed the same Seasons and cycles. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you even see that reflected in like you know the festivals of of places, right. right? Like, I mean, even Israel had a calendar that went with you know the the seasons and things like that. And you know, Paul talks seasons and cycles of the moon, especially. That's right. Well, Paul talks about in Galatians, and we've talked about this text, you know, in regards to elemental spirits and stuff. But Paul talks about in I think it was Galatians where he talks about you know, or maybe it's Colossians. I'd have to go back and look now. I don't have this on the outline, so if that's why I'm blanking on the scripture reference. But huh. where he talks about, like, don't let people judge you for observing, you know, new moons and stuff like yep. that. Like, that's not something that people believers should judge one another over, you know? Oh, yeah, the Hebrew calendar is distinctly lunar-based. Yeah. And so, um, so recovering some of that, I think, could be a helpful way to re-enchant the creation in some ways and to live as creations ourselves rather than elevating ourselves to the creator. Right, like living as though there are no boundaries, that there are no seasons for things. There are, um, and so uh, yeah. So that's about all that I have. Unless you've got anything else you want to add to that? No, I'm good. I think we we could definitely covered a lot. Yeah, that's been uh, an hour and almost fifteen minutes. So that's been pretty good. And so at this point, Richie and I are going to continue this conversation. Uh, and we're going to be contributing. Uh, we're going to be continuing it so that you all will be able to be able to hear it this week. Usually, this is a Patreon only thing. Uh, it's a usually exclusive to there. But since again, since we didn't 
um, have an episode last week. We're going to make it up to you guys by making this uncut episode available to everybody. So on the uncut portion of today's episode, Richie and I will be discussing a little bit more in depth how some of this stuff we've said about the angelic hierarchy gets worked out in church history and even in some fictional works like Tolkien and how like this is like traditional Christianity and it's not just us saying these things. And so, um, so we hope that you guys are looking forward to that. And so Richie, if you don't have anything else, we'll go ahead and sign off. I'm good. All right, guys, we'll see you on today's uncut segment. So see you then. All right. Welcome to the sword and staff uncut. We're glad that you are all joining us today. And so in today's uncut section, we are going to be discussing the angelic hierarchy a little bit more and kind of how that's located in other places in church history and how, you know, even some modern Christians have have worked this type of uh, hierarchy into some of their works and how maybe that should help us view some of this stuff in recovering a re-enchanted view of the creation. So, Richie, how are you feeling about the uncut section today? Well, first, I just I want to say something because when you were describing uh, Jonah and going into going into the belly of the beast and go, like the the underworld symbolism, I swear the the whole time all I could picture was uh, the Kraken coming up and dragging people into Davy Jones' locker, like the, <laughs> of the Caribbean. Dude, that's honestly that's spot on symbolism. Yep, like they got the symbolism of that spot on. Like you have this beast coming up from the depths and where does it take you it takes you to the underworld it takes you to davy jones locker like that's a very traditional way of thinking about that so that's absolutely spot on so i didn't think about that now now that was playing through my head the whole time and i was like uh better just save this yeah well so to get us started today (laughs) we're going to talk a little bit about uh just the angelic hierarchy and orders and this is going to we're going to start off in Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologiae this is in volume 1 questions 1 through 119 the particular place that we're going to be looking is at the 6th article uh in his question 108 so the entire 108 section in the Summa Theologiae is dedicated to the divine government of hierarchy, uh, the angelic hierarchy, uh, the angelic degrees and hierarchies and orders. Uh, yep. Question 109, which is interesting reading for extracurricular uh, things or purposes, is the ordering and the hierarchy of the bad angels. So that's a really interesting yep. conversation, which we're not going to get into that today. But but um, I'm going to do some heavy reading probably in this section of the uncut section, and then we'll kind of maybe pause and talk about some of it, have some conversation. But after that, we're going to get into J.R.R. Tolkien's Valaquinta in the Silmarillion and talk about how basically the same thing that Thomas Aquinas is talking about gets worked out in Tolkien's fictional work and just kind of how you can see that present there and see that it's not just us saying these things and thinking this way, but and then also have that kind of <clears throat> shape the way that we think about these things. So, so uh, in question... In the sixth article, which was whether the grades of the orders of angels are properly assigned, um, Aquinas says this, Let us first examine the reason for the ordering of Dionysius. So basically what he's doing is he's working with Dionysius the Areopagite. Right? So he's showing that this isn't just him who said this. This is somebody else who before him has said it too. Right? Yeah. So he says, in which we see that, as said above, the highest hierarchy contemplates the things in God himself. 
So he's talking about the first hierarchy that we talked about, right? How they contemplate God. They are close to God. They are in this hierarchy of being. They are closer to God. That's why they're the shining ones, as we said, right, earlier. But but he said uh, the highest hierarchy contemplates the idea uh, the ideas and of the things of God himself. And he says the second in the universal causes, right? So that's all he says about the second one there. So he says basically what we said, that the it works down from heaven into the universe, right, in this hierarchy, and they are the ones who are concerned with the universe and the governance of the universe, right? And then after that he says uh, the third, let me find it here, I've lost my place, Um he says the the third in their application of particular effects. So that's the, the hierarchy that is applying the things in the universe on the level of mankind, right? So, um, but he says, um, because God is the end not only of the angelic ministrations, but also the whole creation, it belongs to the first hierarchy to consider that end. So basically, yeah, they contemplate God. They're contemplating um, things, uh, that, yeah, that way. Uh, to the middle one belongs the universal disposition of what is to be done. So that's basically just expanding on what we've already said. Yep. And uh, to the last belongs the application of this disposition of to the effect, which is the carrying out of the work. For it is clear that these three things exist in every kind of operation. So Dionysius, considering the properties of the orders, are derived from their names. So he's basically pointing out what we pointed out earlier, that you can figure out what a lot of them are doing simply by looking at their names, right? right. He says that Dionysius considers their properties and their order of their orders, and it's derived by their names. Places in the first hierarchy, those orders, the names, uh, those orders, the names of which are taken from their relation to God, the, the seraphim, the cherubim, and the thrones, Right. So he's basically saying that their names denote their, their closeness to God, and so that's why they're in this top hierarchy, right? This is right. why in terms of hierarchy of being, they are at the top because their names show that they are close to God, right? Thrones, cherubim, seraphim, all of that. He says, and he places in the middle hierarchy those orders whose names denote a certain kind of common government or disposition, the dominations or the dominions, uh, the virtues, and the powers. So basically he's talking about whenever you look at these names uh, that you can see that they are used in the government of the universe, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, And then he says he places in the third hierarchy the orders uh, whose names denote the execution of the work, the principalities, the angels, and the archangels. So you see that really reflected in, like, the name principality, which is princes, right? The, the, yep. A rule by princes. You see that, too, with angels and archangels. Um, angel simply means messenger, right? So you can see that, like, in Scripture, they are the ones who bring messages to mankind. So you can see that they are lower in this hierarchy of being, so... I don't know if you got anything that you want to add to that, but there is a section here that he talks about um, what I wanted to talk about uh, the virtues where he talks of, yeah, I found it. Um, and this is mainly because it touches on what Tolkien's going to talk about here about how virtues are the ones who are over nature. And yeah. so, but uh, he says, uh, well, I'll read the whole section here because he's going to quote some other people. 
But he says the disposition of the orders, uh, which is mentioned by Gregory. So he's talking about his mentor, which was St. Gregory. So he's referencing someone other than himself. And so St. Gregory believed this as well. Um, But he said the disposition of the orders, which is mentioned by Gregory, is also reasonable. Uh, for for since the dominations appoint and order what belongs to the divine ministrations, the orders subject to them uh, subject to them are arranged according to the disposition of the things in which the divine ministrations are affected. So basically, he's pointing out that dominations uh, are appointed and ordered to what belongs to divine ministration. So basically, they're carrying out the the they are ministering on behalf of God. They are carrying out his works is basically what he's saying. And that even St. Gregory recognizes this. Um, He says, still, as Augustine says, uh, bodies are ruled in a certain order, the inferior by the superior and all of them by the spiritual creature and the bad spirit by the good spirit. So basically he's also referring to St. Augustine here and looks like his work on the Trinity uh, I can't read Latin very well, but I'm pretty sure that that's on the Trinity. Um, but basically he's saying that he's making a point for, for Augustine about hierarchy, that bodies are ruled in a certain order. The inferior is ruled by the superior. And so that's he's making that point to show this hierarchy. Uh, hierarchy. So, um, But he says, so the first order after the dominions, uh, dominations are called the, princi- the principalities who rule even over good spirits. Uh, then powers who coerce the evil spirits, even as evildoers, are coerced by earthly powers, as it is written um, in Romans thirteen three through four. And after these come the virtues, who have power over corporeal nature and the working of miracles. After these are the angels and the archangels who announce to men either great things above reason or small things within purview of reason. So I want to really focus in on the virtues part where he talks about that they are the ones who are over corporeal nature. So that just goes to show like even St. Thomas, who is writing in the Middle Ages, he is the height of the Middle Ages, right? Thomas Aquinas is the height of this type of theology. Like he is, he is it. Okay. Um, but he's saying that like, these are the, the beings who have power over corporeal nature over the material plane, right? Like they, they are the ones that God has delegated authority off to for the governance of this. Right. So that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, it just goes to show that like, what we're saying here, uh, like it's not just us making this up. Absolutely. Yeah. And then he says that they're also the ones who are at work in miracles, right? So think about miracles in the Bible, right? Like you have, you have um, the parting of the Red Sea. That's a miracle. That would fall under the dominion of virtues because that's corporeal, right? That's material. So they would have been the one who parts the waters on behalf of God. God's the primary cause. They would be the secondary cause, right? So they would be the ones who are doing that. Also, um, you know, you would also see that. Um, I would say that that in some ways they are also the ones who deliver the means of grace to, to believers. So we're reformed, right? Um, and so we do believe that the sacraments are a means of grace. Yep. Um, baptism is a means of grace where God uh, deposits into the believer sanctifying grace, not justifying grace, sanctifying grace. And it's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. And we know that Calvin said in particular, um, 
that we feast on Christ spiritually in the heavenlies. So there's this ascension, basically, that he talks about in the Lord's Supper, which is distinguished from the changing of the elements uh, via transubstantiation uh, with Catholic theology. Right. right? Um, So you could say that there's even a place for the virtues in this type of role, in the administration of the sacraments, that they are the ones who make these things, uh, who who are the, the vehicles that deliver the grace through these natural elements, to the believer, because this would fall into their realm, which is really a, a different view of a remythologized view of of this, right? Right. But it makes it makes sense of what Paul talks. Or, well, I think it's Paul, but um, what I would say that Saint Paul, I think it's Saint Paul, but in Hebrews, yeah, our official take, it's Paul. Uh, Hebrews chapter twelve in verse twenty two, where he talks about what happens in the. Or it's not twelve; it's a uh, it's eleven. Eleven twenty two, uh, in the the gathering, was it was it twelve was it eleven? Um, hold on a second here. This is part of the fun part of the uncut versions. I usually don't have the stuff that I need <laughs> pulled up. Uh, beautiful uh, chaos. Anything goes. Beautiful. We've got water flooding through right yep. now. Right. Um, yeah. Hold on a second here. I'm gonna have to pull it up here. I thought it was, I swear it was twelve twenty two. Hold on a second. Technical difficulties. Yeah, it was 1222. I don't know what in the world is going on here. Yeah, Hebrews 1222. Hebrews 1222, he says this. Uh, and I think that this corresponds to what we're saying here about the angelic beings being present in the distribution of the sacraments, making these natural things effectual means of spiritual grace. Um that's a it's miraculous in some ways, and so right. that would fall under the the virtues role. But he says this um, in twenty two. He says, "You have come to Mount Zion." Now we're going to touch on this more next week in our episode on reenchanting the church. But next week, uh, or we're going to talk again. We'll talk about. It. But he says, "You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God." So there's something going on whenever we're gathering in the church. It's more than just the material plane part. It's more than just walking into a building. It's more than just sitting with people. It's more than just eating bread and drinking wine. And it's more than just going down in the waters. Okay, so he says that whenever we come into the church, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels in festal gathering. Yep. (laughs) Right? To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge over all, and to the spirits made righteous by the uh, made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the, of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we know that whenever we come together to worship and to administrate the sacraments, we come into the presence of the angels, of the angelic hierarchy, right? Right. Um, and so it would make sense that they continue to do the work that God has delegated to them, which would be the ruling um, and operation of the corporeal parts of nature, right? As Thomas Aquinas says. So I don't know if you got anything you want to add to that, but uh, yeah, that's I think that changes the way that we view things like the sacraments in some ways. Yep. So that's Thomas Aquinas, and so now, so hopefully, let me state the goal. I hope that you see that like this, the hierarchy stuff is present there. 
Like the reason why it's structured the part of the reason why it's structured the way that it is, is because um, we see that in the names, right? Some of them have names that are obviously um, directed uh, towards God and the thrones and the, all those things. We see them uh, doing things in Scripture that corresponds to heaven, and some of them are closer to man, and their names denote that. So we hope that you see that in Aquinas and see that. He's also saying the same things that we are. And we also hope that you can, that changes the way that you may maybe think about the sacraments in some ways. Yeah. But that's, anyway. So, now I want to go to, and I figure that this is where we can have some really interesting conversations. Um, Tolkien's Silmarillion. Specifically, uh, the Valaquinta, which is the second work in um it's the second work in the Silmarillion. The first is the Annalindale, and then this one's the Valaquinta. But here, we see in the Valaquinta is an it is an account of the Valar and the Maiar, according to the lore of the Eldar. Okay, and so here's what I want to say. I'm saying that Tolkien is taking this same angelic hierarchy, at least parts of it, not all of it, um, but parts of it, and he is implementing it into his work in middle earth oh absolutely right and so and you actually tolkien actually said that the lord of the rings was a distinctly christian and catholic work now again we're not catholic but this stuff that we're talking about is a part of catholic theology okay it's well it's before uh, past that it's 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 part of christian theology right and so here's i think a part of that where we'll see how Tolkien's work is distinctively Christian in some ways, okay? So the, if you don't know, the Valar and the Maiar are spiritual beings in Tolkien's world, okay? And the Valar are higher spiritual beings, right? They're all, they're, they were once called the, the Einar, right? They were, that was whenever they were with Eru, Iluvatar, or, or God. And some of them in, entered into Arda, Right, the creation. And the higher ones become what's called the Valar, and then the lower spiritual beings become what's called the Maiar. But here's what I think is interesting. Tolkien takes this same exact view that we're talking about, the spiritual beings over the creation, and he implements it into his work. And I think this should really shape our imaginations and how we think about this. So listen to what he's, I'm not going to read all of Aliquinta. Um, it's, it's a difficult read, but I, I want to specifically talk about parts of this that we see with some of these spiritual beings and kind of how they function. So he talks about a, a Valar here called Manwe and Manwe was the brethren of Melkor, who is kind of like the satanic figure in Middle Earth, but it says Manway and Melkor were brethren in the thought of Iluvatar, the mightiest of the Anor, uh, who came to into the world uh, was in the beginning of with Melkor. But Manway is dearest to Iluvatar and understands most clearly his purposes. He was appointed to be in the fullness of time the first of all kings, lord of the realm of Arda, the ruler that dwells therein. In Arda, his delight is in the winds and in the clouds in all of the regions of the air, from the heights to the depth, to the utmost borders of the Vale of Arda, to the breezes that blow in the grass. Solomo, he is surnamed, Lord of the Breath of Arda. All swift birds, 
strong of wing he loves and they come and go and do his bidding so i don't know if you got anything that you want to throw in on that but i find that very very interesting because it reminds me of the second angelic uh, the second choir of the angelic hierarchy right where you have these beings who are over the creation and then yep. some who are involved in the operations of the corporeal part of creation and you see that here in tolkien's work with manway who is over the air and all of the things that are in the air and you see certain you see similar language direct crossover there yeah well you see certain language too later on in scripture like in ephesians with the the prince of the power of the air yeah that's what i was going to say you know now obviously that that this is a corrupted spiritual being in ephesians but it just goes to show that it's the same thing right it's the same thing and so he goes on though but he says um you know with manway dwells varda lady of the stars right who knows all the regions of ea to too great is her beauty to be declared in the world in the words of men or of elves for the light of Iluvatar still lives in her face in light is her power and her joy so it says uh, manway and varda are self-imparted and they remain in valinor so but here you have his manway's wife um, now we don't see anything like that in scripture, right? With, you know, spiritual beings that are married, you know, like that. But, um, but you have a lady of the stars, right? Who is over the heavenly, you know, the heavenly lights, right? Which again, corresponds to what we've saw with the sun, moon, and stars being spiritual beings, right? So really yeah, interesting. But even in paganism, I mean, you, you see that kind of, relationship between spiritual beings in paganism like yeah. even with demigods and things being birthed out of those unions yeah yeah oh yeah no that's that's really interesting and uh so we see too you know manway and then you see varda and then after that um some of these are really difficult to pronounce yeah. tolkien's a, a a boss whenever it comes to uh, you know, language, but uh, he talks about the that, language goat. Yeah, right. But he talks about that there is a uh, another one called Olmo, not Elmo, not Elmo, Olmo, Olmo. He says Olmo is the Lord of the Waters. Right. He is alone. He dwells nowhere long, but moves as he wills in all of the deep waters about the earth and under the earth. Right. Uh, he is next in might to Manway, and before Valinor was made, uh, was made he was closest to him in friendship. But thereafter, he went seldom into the councils of the Valar. So you have this council with these spiritual beings happening. Unless great matters were in debate, uh, for he kept Arda in thought, and he has no need of any resting place. Um, moreover, he does not love to walk upon land, and will seldom clothe himself in a body. That's interesting. After the manner of his peers, uh, the children of Eru uh, beheld him, and they were filled with great dread, for the arising of the king of the sea was terrible, as a mounting wave, the strides of the land, with the dark helm foam-crested and raiment of mail shimmering with silver, down into shadows of green. The trumpets of Manway are loud, but Olmo's voice is deep as the deeps, uh, as the yeah, of the deeps of the ocean, which only he has seen. That's really interesting. Yeah. Really, really interesting. All right. Well, 
That's about all I got. You got anything else? Not off the top of my head. I don't either. I mean, there's things just swirling through it all over the place, but... Might have a little bit more here. Let's see. Yeah. I'm trying to pronounce some of these names. L.A. We can go with some more of these. We've got some other spiritual beings here named, but... We've got another one here named Ale, who is the... Not Olmo. Ale is the lord of the substances of Arda that, uh, that Arda is made from. So, if I'm not mistaken... L.A. was the one who also made the dwarves right. in Middle-earth, right? That's what I thought. Yep. So we see that L.A., um, he says he's a little bit less than Olmo, but his lordship is over all the substances which is which Arda is made. In the beginning, he wrought much fellowship with Manway and Olmo and the fashioning of all the lands and his labor. Uh, he is a smith and a master of all crafts, and he delights in work and skill however small, as much as in the mighty building of old. Uh, his are the gems that lie deep in the earth and the gold that is fair in the hand, no less than the walls of the mountains and the basins of the sea. The Noldar learned most from him, and he was ever their friend. Melkor was, Melkor was jealous of him, for he was most like him in thought and power. But basically it talks about that he was the one who remained faithful to Eru and submitted to all that he did in his will whereas Melkor uh, spent his spirit in envy and hate. But basically, same thing. Yeah. Right? Tolkien's basically laying out that we have all these different types of spiritual beings who are over the various parts of the creation and all of the, the elements. And it's very, very similar to what like Aquinas is laying out here in his Summa Theologiae. So it's... Hopefully, I guess, we're not, like I said, we're not going to read through all of this. There's all kinds of them mentioned in the Valaquinta. So you need to go check out the Valaquinta if you've never seen it. But hopefully, um, just a taste of this gives you an idea of some of what we're saying here and what Christianity has been saying for, you know, 2,000 years now right. and uh, what we're trying to recover. So hopefully that gives you guys an idea of that. So I don't know. You got anything else you want to add to that? Uh, not offhand. Okay. Well, let me look here and see how long we got. Oh, dang. We're almost two hours. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, excellent. Um, that's good. I think that everybody will get a uh, get a good episode here well I, I do want to read this this comes from the angelology i mean section. we could literally sit and just talk about yeah tolkien lord of the rings yeah forever yeah that's yeah we could keep going forever and ever on this but in the uh there's a section uh, on there's a book called the philosophy of tolkien the worldview behind the lord of the rings by peter kraft basically in that um he has a section on angelology and he says in the silmarillion the anor uh can put on human bodies as we put on clothes so we see that in Scripture too, right? He says uh, this is. Uh, he says certain biblical passages seem to imply this. The Nephilim in Genesis six, which we've we've talked about a lot before. Yep. Uh, the three angels eating Abraham's food in Genesis nineteen, and then he refers to a uh, an apocryphal work called Tobit, chapter verses uh, five or chapter five through twelve. He says when Tobias was begu- uh, being guided by an angel in disguise. He says, in the Silmarillion, those Ainur who entered the world became the Valar, 
the powers of the world, and remain until the world's end. These, Tolkien says, men have often called gods, uh, thus offering a more than psychological explanation for ancient polytheism. Uh, He says, angels can bilocate. They can live both in heaven and on earth at the same time. The most important angel is in the Lord of the Rings, next to Gandalf, uh, Gandalf is er, uh, Elbereth, who also bilocates, who saves Frodo at the uh, ford of Brunion, and again in Shelob's lair. And she is also Varda, the Lady of the Stars, which we just now were reading about in the Silmarillion. Yep. So, but basically, what's going on here is Tolkien has this same view of angelic beings and they're intervening also in the world in the same way that the Bible says that angelic beings intervene in the world. Exactly. So, so anyway, that's a few things. Uh, I've got like five books sitting here in front of me. Yeah. If you guys watched our Instagram live video today, you, you got to see some of those. We dropped an Instagram live video that was like 30 minutes and I've, I'm trying not to dive into, to C.S. Lewis and his world with you know the ransom trilogy and and narnia i have michael ward's planet narnia uh planet narnia right here in front of me right now so i'm trying not to dive too deep into that right now too and to show how basically lewis has the same exact thing in his worldview too where you have these spiritual beings that are over the different planets in uh narnia and that's why he calls his work planet Narnia during our uh, Instagram lives, we can deep dive into some of these books. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. So, all right, guys. Well, I think that about does it today. We're bringing coming in at an hour and forty five now, so should be a, should be pretty good, I think. Yep. Yeah, right. And so we hope that you guys enjoyed today's episode, Richie. If you don't have anything else, that should do it for me. I'm good. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. Make sure to head over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash sword and staff order get the sword and staff uncut for just five dollars a month and yeah get these episodes delivered faster they drop there first and after this week's all of the uncut versions will go back on to uh, we'll be releasing those as patreon exclusives only so you want to sign up you want to get those because you want to get this extra content that we don't typically release and so the way that you get it is becoming a patron over patreon so thank you so much for listening and we'll see you guys next week